Um, all right, are we set? All right, quiet in the studio, please. Welcome to a very special live edition of Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history, coming to you today from Podfest Berlin. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum here in Berlin. So we're doing something a bit unusual today, which is we're going to do a, a double header, a back-to-back of two different Bad Gays who lived quite different lives and different times, but I think who have stories that speak to each other. Yeah, they kind of run into each other, one to the other, and they're both people that we've thought about doing in the past, but we could never quite get a full episode out of them. Um, And so now we've got a sort of half half episode on each um, to share with you here. And what you here get um, in our live audience is the uh, extra special visual component. So please react loudly uh, so that our uh, audience listening uh, on our feed knows that they should click through uh, the link in the show notes, which will be there to uh, take a look at these visuals because we're talking about two artists um, and so we get to actually show you some of their work. So do you want to get us started, Hugh? Sure, yeah. And if you are listening to the podcast on our, on our feed, then uh, yeah, check out the, the visuals and um, we'll give you some clues as when to click through. So I want to start with the story of a guy called uh, Simeon Solomon. Next slide, please, Ben. This is his uh, self-portrait as a young man, emanating twink energy. And his story really is a snapshot of the sort of complexities of a sort of changing English society in the Victorian era, a time that was full of um, darkness and violence and repression, but that was lit by a sort of a sense of a sort of a waking dream of the possibilities of this new, rapidly shrinking world and, and modernizing world. And he was really animated by those dreams. He was intoxicated by them. Um, but his own desires would, would come into conflict with a society that was scared by those changes and would use all the tools in its power to, to halt them. So in many ways, he's, he's a mirror of the, the great uh, gay martyr who would come later, Oscar Wilde. He kind of looks like Wilde, too. They have the same haircut and the same kind of, um, the same nose, the same sort of set of the face. Yeah, I can see, I can see a similarity. Um, uh, but I guess unlike Wilde, his name has sort of been lost to the public, lost to history. And, and I, I think that's a, this is the story of why that happened, I guess. So um, Simeon Solomon was born in 1840, while the uh, Victorian era was in its infancy. And so with the benefit of hindsight, it often seems like you know, the huge industrial, economic and cultural leaps of that era were inevitable. But in 1840, uh, the new queen had only been on the throne for three years and those changes were far from inevitable. She was just 21 years old and actually she was very unpopular with the public when she became the queen. And while the Industrial Revolution was well underway, the prospects of the nation were, were far from certain and the same could really be seen for Solomon. Um, although his family was well off, he faced multiple hurdles in his life, um, mainly because uh, Simeon's family was Jewish. Can you see the next slide? This is one of his early works, um, which is a, a drawing of a, a, a seder um, of a Passover in East, uh, in East London at the time. His, family, uh, his father's family had emigrated to London from Europe, probably from Germany or the Netherlands, 
in the late 18th century, and he'd become a, a, a very successful manufacturer of hats, straw hats. He had, a, he had a factory in East London. And the family lived within the Jewish community that was around Bishopsgate in, in the East End of London. And while they were very successful um, and also um, assimilated, they, they still faced huge legal and social persecution um, because Jews in London and England at the time were unable to vote, so they couldn't enter Parliament, and they also couldn't take professions like lawyers, for example. Um, and, of course, anti-Semitism was rife, not least because there was this huge influx of, of Jewish refugees into London who were escaping pogroms in Eastern Europe and Russia. And that led to this moral panic of the time because um, Jews were regarded as sort of aliens from an Eastern culture and they were marked out as racially other. So Mayor Solomon, uh, Simeon's father, had worked very hard to try to overcome those hurdles. And he was actually remarkably ses- successful as, <clears throat> as a result. Um, largely because of his success with his hat-making company. Now, Hugh, can you imagine, I know this is difficult to imagine, but can you imagine a country in Western Europe where Jews are regarded as sort of alien Eastern nationals, maybe all natives of a different country and not the one where they live? What a shocking thing that would be. Um, well, that's for you to comment on. Well, I have. Um, so, so as part of his assimilation, um, Mayer actually became a, a Freemason, and he was actually one of the uh, first Jewish men to receive the freedom of the city of London. And he lived a sort of very bourgeois life, a very recognisable Victorian bourgeois life, um, including having lots of children. He had eight kids. Um, and Solomon was one of those, those eight kids uh, quite towards the end. Uh, his brother was in his 20s when he was born. Um, and his artistic tendencies were really encouraged very early on by his family, and actually, he wasn't the first artist in his family. His, his older brother, Abraham, and his older sister, Rebecca, were both um, quite successful painters in their own rights. And so Solomon followed the same path. And uh, in 1856, when he was just 15 years old, he was admitted to the Royal Academy, which is then and still one of the most uh, prestigious art schools in, in England. And he was vouched for to become a member by a fellow, which is how it used to happen. A, a fellow of the academy would say, you know, this person has promise, etc., etc. You can, you should take him on into the schools. Um, the member who, who, uh, who recommended him, and this is a great Victorian name. I'm ready. Augustus Leopold Egg. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> Egg was a really interesting character, actually. Um, the was, he, world, was, was he an odd egg? <laughs> he, he was a very odd egg, actually. Was he a good egg or a bad egg? He was a good egg. Okay. Because the art world at London at the time was in the midst of this really big schism between um, a group of artists who were um, rejecting academicism in favour of genre painting, and they, they were known as the clique, and then this other group who were opposed to them who wanted instead to return to this much earlier form of a sort of late medieval-inspired art um, before the artistic revolutions of the Renaissance. Um, and so this group was called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and their name is quite literal. It refers to art as it was before the great Italian Renaissance artist Raphael. So refresh me on my art history, Hugh. Uh, if I'm walking through the museum, the uh, pre-Raphaelite room is the one that's full of sort of red-haired, mega-pissed-off, slightly hook-nosed women in ponds? Uh, yeah, in fact, if you click on the next slide, we've got a great example of... Well, she's not in a pond, she's in a bed. Uh, but there they are. This is Sleeping Beauty, as imagined by the pre-Raphaelites, and gives a great sort of example of a lot of the sort of things that pre-Raphaelites were thinking of. Um, these very bright colours, uh, this quite formal setup, and then of course this return to like these 
stories quite often influenced by medieval era, so myths um, and legends, Arthurian legends, things things like that, but also um, uh, religious stories as well. And you can see in the colours and things like this, you, you're moving away from this very sort of um, the genre painting of the time, which was these really dark Victorian scenes uh, of, of the time. But when I think about painting before Raphael, I think about like gold ground painting and Giotto and stuff like that. And this looks nothing like that. So there's, I mean, what is the, is there an actual model that they're looking to, or are they just looking to a sort of vision of life in the medieval? Yeah, this was like a Victorian take on medievalism. It was like a, okay. a sort of um, nostalgic look back on those on those right. things. And, and um, kind of what they're looking for is um, a return to the idea of like spiritual values in art rather than this sort of obsession with um, a, re- a materialist representation of the real. So I think people like Raphael and Leonardo, these Renaissance artists, were hugely influenced by an- anatomy and things like that. So they were trying to create these representations of life Mm-hmm. Um, based on the visual, on, on, on the material, looking at like how things actually are. And the pre-Raphaelites were looking for the spiritual content of what it means to make art. Right. Um, they were a very interesting bunch. They'd been formed about a decade before Solomon had actually even entered art school, so the 1840s, by a, a very small group of artists and poets, because the, the Brotherhood is actually a sort of formal organisation as much as an art movement, and they, they um, sign up to a set of beliefs, and they... It's not very dogmatic. They were quite against the idea of a dogmatic, rigid approach because they saw that as academic. But they were they 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 were trying to make it a sort of intervention in Victorian art culture. So they um, so they would all sign their their pieces uh, PBS, no, PRB, PBS, <laughs> the American TV this channel, is NPR, <laughs> National Public Radio. Um, yeah, so they felt that sort of yeah, as I was saying, like the 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 changes in art that happened in the Renaissance were too mechanistic and gone in this overly formal direction. And then at the same time, they thought in, in the Victorian era there was too much genre painting, too much rigidity. So they wanted to return to what they believed as something which was like a more natural form of art. Um, uh, and so they wanted bright colours and they wanted ornamentation. And then their themes tended again towards the religious and uh, the mythic. Um, so yeah, as we see here, Sleeping Beauty, but especially Arthurian legends, they're really big on. So there's a sort of proto-nationalist, like they're very influenced by the romantics. And there's this sort of proto-nationalist idea of like what it means to be British, going back to these British stories as well. Um, and painters like Rossetti and uh, Millet painted also pictures of Christ and, and his family um, and saints. And then, of course, perhaps the most pre- famous of the pre-Raphaelite paintings is um, Millet's representation of Shakespeare's Ophelia drowning in a river, which we can see on the next slide. There she is. Um, I, told, I told you it was going to be mega pissed off, red-haired, slightly hook-nosed women lying in ponds. And there, there she is. Doing exactly that. As with all sort of English um, cultural movements throughout history, there was this very small group of people who were all having sex with each other, going to the same parties and painting each other. So I think this was someone else's wife. (laughs) I think Rossetti's wife. It's like the joke about the Bloomsbury circle, that they lived in squares, created in circles, and loved in triangles. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Um, but they continued to have an influence after the sort of official formal brotherhood started to break down a bit. There was a split, of course, a schism within the brotherhood. Um, a hey, that's my wife-related <clears throat> schism? or No, no, an ideological schism. Okay. Um, they were pretty open about, surprisingly open about, hey, that's my wife. Um, but they would be very influential going on as well to the arts and crafts movement, arts and crafts movement as well. My own personal taste is not matching the pre-Raphaelites, but I think this one is 
one of the better ones. Yeah, this is there, there's lovely things about this. Um, in general, I kind of skip over them, but it's nice to actually yeah. first to look at it. Um, so, so Simeon was very influenced by them, although he was younger than most of them. They'd already sort of established themselves by the time he was even in art school. But he he was meeting them a lot of them because he was at the RA, the Royal Academy, and they were actually really impressed with his work. They they thought he was um, a new talent, and especially by his sketchbooks. Um, and I think in the next picture we've got something from his sketchbook. Oh, that's really lovely. Yeah, he was um, he was a very very talented um, draftsman, and he became very close, especially with um, two painters, uh, a couple called um, Edward and Georgiana Byrne Jones, who were part of the part of the Brotherhood, slightly older than him, and they really marvelled at his his young talents. Um, but. He plays an interesting role in the Pre-Raphaelites because obviously being Jewish, his work focused not on the life of Jesus, but on um, stories of the the Torah, stories that would be recognizable to Christian Victorians as Old Testament stories. So stories of Moses and Jeremiah and the Exodus to Babylon. So Um, like really (laughs) Pre-Raphaelite. Yeah, this I think is a a drawing of um, Ruth and Naomi. Um, And his elder brother, Abraham, who had graduated from the RA some 20 years beforehand, um, and he was a very popular painter, um, and that reputation, as he was much more academic, um, that reputation kind of dom- dominated Simeon's because um, he was painting these like Victorian genre scenes of you know women having dramas on trains or in courthouses with this like very muted, sludgy palette. Whereas Simeon, on the other hand, was very much more their cup of tea for the Pre-Raphaelites. And so Women be- having drama on trains in a muted, sludgy palette is an entire genre of novel that I like very much. <laughs> um, so, so being more in fashion, I guess, he began to rise in influence and regard in the, in the art scene. He got his own studio. He moved out of his brother's studio. But while his public art might have been um, the sort of brotherhood-approved biblical scenes, Simeon had other more interesting and more exciting for us uh, interests. Oh. So he became very close friends with a poet, and we've got another great Victorian name coming up, Algernon Charles Swinburne. Uh, next slide. There he is. Yes, that is Algernon Charles Swinburne. He was a very kinky little fellow who shared the pre-Raphaelite's interest in the medieval and the ancient. And Algernon's interests were very broad, but most of all, he lived for scandal, alcohol, and masochism. Well, he went to an English public school. That explains it. Um, He he liked to be um, beaten on the bottom. So when Algernon lived with uh, Rossetti, who was one of the big pre-Raphaelites, it's alleged that actually Rossetti got increasingly frustrated with his escapades and living with this kind of nightmare um, flatmate from hell, uh, including uh, Rossetti being in his studio trying to paint and being um, disturbed by Algernon and a lover sliding naked down the banisters of the stairs. Um, and... No, he, no wonder those, the hook-nosed, red-haired women were so pissed off. They weren't yeah. getting any sleep. They had this guy sliding down their banisters all night. Um, so he, he spe- specialized in scandal, I guess. Like He, was, he, he kind of loved um, to shock and outrage. That was kind of what got him going. Um, and so he, he wrote these sort of blasphemous, erotic uh, poet, po- poems and, and literature. And he declared that, quote... Imaginative separation from uh, and rebellion against conventional pieties is itself a source of power. So he was one of the uh, an artist, uh, sorry, a writer who was very much sort of driven by um, uh, shaking the dust off the boring Victorian bourgeoisie. 
uh, Rossetti actually got so fed up with, with his escapades that he paid the American poet, Ada Menken, to seduce him as a sort of distraction to get him out of the house. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, after trying, she later returned the £10 note, saying, quote, I can't make him understand that biting is no good. <laughs> um, so, from, I mean, there is a lot to be said in some ways for Algernon's writing, but for many he was seen as nothing really but scandal. Um, he would claim to be a pederast, for example, and he also claimed that he once fucked and then ate a monkey. What? <laughs> yeah. Do we have evidence no. of whether this happened? No, Probably I mean, not. he, was, he, anyway. he just loved to shock, I think. Um, Oscar Wilde didn't have much time for him, and he regarded all these claims as pure showmanship. Um, he once said that he was, quote, a braggart in mat- matters of vice who had done everything he could do to convince his fellow citizens of his homosexuality and bestiality without being in the slightest degree a homosexual or a bestializer. <laughs> so, uh, wait, are you telling me that um, English elite public schools produce people who are alcoholic, somewhat masochistic, uh, and public liars and addicted to scandal and also maybe have uh, troubling sexual relationships with children? Uh, Surely well, that's well, not in this completely. case. Not in this case, because these things are not true, as we'll discover later. Okay. Um, although he did, I think, I think the the masochism is true. But um, Simeon, I think, seemed to be a kindred spirit for Algernon, and he jumped to the opportunity to illustrate uh, Algernon's new book, uh, which goes by the name of Lesbia Brandon. Uh, I think that was a later name it was given. It was never actually published in his lifetime, but it was a pornographic novel which featured themes of incest. Um, flogging, lesbianism, but we did actually go some way to address these deeper themes of, you know, the nature of love and its relationship with the authoritarian, with masochism and with liberation, I guess. Well, the nature of love is incestuous lesbian flogging, clearly. (laughs) Um, So these themes also begin to appear in Simeon's more public work at the time. Um, He didn't necessarily explicitly represent them as such, but his subjects really began to adopt this increasingly androgynous look. Um, today, the, the, the sort of bisexual coding of his work is, is impossible to ignore. Um, regular listeners uh, will remember, of course, in Victorian England, these discourses around homosexuality were very different to today's, and they very much conflated ideas of sexuality and gender divergence much more readily. Um, in contemporary sex- sexology to him, um, homosexuals were thought to be something more akin to a third gender, people whose sexual nature was an inversion of the norm where, you know, female souls would reside in male bodies and vice versa. Um, And he was also painting at the same time that the Uranian poets were writing. We've talked about before, I think, in the Bosi episode. And this was an aesthetic movement which which valorized same-sex love very much, but also looked back to these pederastic models of the ancient Greeks, which saw the teenage boy as the idealized sexual subject. Um, In fact, if we click on the next picture. Well, there we go. So, so um, Simeon's work very much mirrored those ideals. So in this drawing, which is the bride, the bridegroom, and sad love, um, a drawing that he made in 1865, you see here him representing this very muscular young man uh, and his new bride in an embrace, but the groom is still tentatively sort of holding the hand of this younger boy. Is, is the hand is what he's holding there? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the younger boy is kind of grabbing his fingertip, though. He doesn't want to let go. That's the, that's I, the issue. Yeah, just it, if you're looking, um, just look at the picture and see how the hand is positioned and, and, and yeah. what you might initially think is being grabbed. So this very sad, sort of slightly androgynous or even um, 
hermaphroditic younger man here is representing sad love. And I think here you see this like theme that you get within this sort of pederastic model of the ancient Greeks, which is that there's this, this sort of trans, uh, this model of like this time when you, you when you're young you have male lovers and you get married and that's kind of like not really a conflict within the idea of a sexuality. And the the so this this younger man here is muscular and is clearly aging into adulthood and that's when he's taking his wife, but he can't really let go of this sad love of the pederastic model. It's a very beautiful drawing, isn't it? his face. Um, and then if you see on the next one, this is one of his paintings of a similar era. Uh, this is Sappho. That is Sappho, in, yes. In, in her garden with a lover. And um, a very cute... Is that an Italian greyhound? Is it greyhound a dog or a deer? The, it's a... I'm going to go ahead and say Italian greyhound, but uh, a very nice one. So this was painted in 19, uh, 1864. And you also see something really of his style here, which is um, really moving away from this like thick. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of quite different in some ways from the pre-Raphaelites in subject, yes, and representation. But you can see that his paintwork is much more loose, um, and I think I, don't know, I like it a lot more. So, so yeah, these these themes of what was clearly even read at the time as being deviant uh, were so pronounced in it that even in this buttoned-up Victorian world, some critics did actually notice it and they started to, to sort of comment derisively on their supposed effeminacy. Um, writing under the name Robert Buchanan, I think a fake name, one critic attacked the uh, middle-class aesthetic art-loving society that, quote, goes into ecstasy over Mr. Solomon's pictures. Pretty pieces of morality, such as love, dying by the breath of lust. And then lamented that, quote, that painters like Mr. Solomon lend actual genius to worthless subjects and therefore produce veritable monsters. It's amazing when you look back at what was shocking in the past, that this was like, a, these paintings were like terrifying, shocking things to the Victorian public. Right, I mean, is, this is an era when, <clears throat> when the Victorians are putting little frilly dresses on table legs, lest people get the wrong idea about your dinner table being a slut? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but also it's very easy to sort of over-represent the Victorians as like in these, these prude moralists. Like there was a lot going on in Victorian society and a lot of co um, conversation about these subjects. And like this is part, obviously clearly part of a public discourse. Like Mr. Buchanan, or whatever his name was, was not afraid to, to, to talk and, and engage in dialogue about the, what is immoral in this. Like they were, they were having that discussion. I mean, not to bring Michel Foucault into the chat, but um, this is our show, after all. Um, I mean, it, it's, it is like Foucault writes in The History of Sexuality, right, that these, the reason why we think about this time period as being so prudish is actually evidence for the fact that there is constant discussion of sex and sexuality, right. and actually in relatively frank terms, um, things are being understood, diagnosed, discussed, categorized. Um, this whole sort of discursive machine is kicking into gear. Um, and you see it with, with something like this being, being understood as being really dangerous when maybe 100 years before it might not have been. Yeah, right. Right, which is also evidence for progress not moving forward, right? Yeah, and, and his paintings at this time are very representative of exactly this conversation that was happening and, and, and within culture and these artistic movements. Um, at a time, you got this movement called aestheticism, which was very much prizing um, beauty and also eroticism over the idea that art has any sort of implicit moral or political lesson that actually is about uh, yeah, this, this sensual aspect of it. In fact, I've got another, another picture. <clears throat> This is a, a, port, a self, oh no, portrait of Solomon at the time, a photograph. 
Oh, wow. Are really interesting. Is this how he goes around, uh, or is this how he's interested in depicting himself? This is this how kind he's interested of in depicting himself. Self-orientalizing yeah. for people who aren't looking along or maybe listening on the on the subway or something while you're doing the dishes. Um, you've got Solomon here. He has a short beard and mustache, and he's wearing a kind of... Um, a turban. Turban and a sort of Eastern robe. Right, yeah, and maybe we can talk about this later. It's like really interesting the, the role he plays as a Jewish artist because... Jews in England at the time were seen as this sort of Eastern or exotic thing, so he plays this kind of middleman for a Victorian public who are interested in the sensuality of the East, which they're in the process of colonising um, and 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 orientalising. And he's seen as a, as a, even though he's born and bred in in East London, he's seen as a, almost a figure from the East, and that's what he's bringing to the, the table. It's the same in Germany too. Martin Buber, the the uh, famous Jewish philosopher, is. Um famously sort of self-orientalizes German Jews and says that we should look away from the assimilating Jews who are trying to become like everyone else and develops a critique of modernity out of the life ways of what he calls the Ostjuden, the, the Jews of the East, the Jews from the Pale of Settlement. Um, and it's very much part of this broader project of critiquing modernity and going back to the future and this kind of primitivist thing that we've spoken about a lot on this show. Um, but it's being done to the self, which I think is really interesting. And, and Jews and gays share many things in common. Um, one of them is that we're both, um, I think, self-ethnographizing and self-orientalizing people, uh, which has both given and taken away. Right, so so he's very popular for, um, uh, with this new aesthetic movement of the time for exactly this sort of self-representation um, and actually a key figure and, and supporter of the movement of aestheticism uh, is Oscar Wilde and Wilde who was actually younger than Solomon began to collect his work and indeed almost half a century later Wilde actually name checks him in, in De Profundis his letter from Reading Jail to, to Bosi um, and uh, sort of um, laments that his during his trial, um, as a result of his trial and, and the costs, he had to sell sell his works, including all his Solomon works, which is a source of great sadness for, for Wilde. Um, and Wilde's obviously trial and martyrdom and his self representation, self mythologizing, becomes this sort of foundational myth for homosexuality in the West and in England. The love that dare not speak its name. Absolutely, but the the story might just as well have been Solomon's because. Um, 20 years before Wilde's infamous trial, uh, Simeon found himself in exactly the same situation. It was the evening of the 11th of February, 1873, uh, and a policeman named William Mitchell walked into a public toilet on a small mews behind Stratford Place, which is just off Oxford Street in London. And there he found Simeon Solomon, who was just 32 at the time, <clears throat> with a, a 60-year-old stableman named George Roberts, and they were some inflagrante delicto. Coitus interruptus. They weren't fucking, but they were either had or were about to be fucking, I guess. So the next day, these two men were brought before a judge and they were found guilty of attempted sodomy. Um, this is still an incredibly serious offence. Um, it was only been a little more than a decade earlier that the theoretical punishment for sodomy was still death. Theoretical Naomi Wolf. <laughs> theoretical Naomi Wolf. Um, uh, although, yeah, in, in reality, the, the last execution for sodomy had been 40 years earlier. But this is also this interesting time because sodomy is still on the books and then people are being prosecuted for it but not being sentenced to death. Uh, and are we? And we're now before gross indecency in terms this of is what before, the... Exactly, but okay. this is before the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, which was this 
very transformative law, both in, in terms of punishing queer people, but also in terms of defining what homosexuality was. So before, as we've, we've discussed on the show before, before you had this crime of, of sodomy, which is, um, has a very high bar in order to prove it, which is, you know, that there has to be a witness and one partner has to ejaculate within the anus of the other partner. So really hard to prove. Um, or attempted, which is what they're trying to Or attempted, which is yeah. more like to get people, which is you're, you're going for it. Whereas late, later, as, as they start to, as the fear of the moral panic around homosexuality develops in the 1860s and 1870s, um, and they're like, we need, to, we need to like just figure out kind of what this is and everyone's doing it and we need to like just stamp it out. So they introduce this really broad, ill-defined law of gross indecency which kind of covers everything from fucking in a public toilet to, like, flirting and, um, you know, trying to pick someone up. And by the way, that same worded gross indecency law remains on the books as a kind of legacy of British colonialism um, in many former British colonies, including in um, Kenya, including in Singapore, and including in the Palestinian territories, in Gaza and the West Bank. That's the same text of the law. Right. So, but this is, this is happening, uh, yeah, like a, a good um, decade before, over a decade before, before that law is brought in. But it's obviously still a very serious offence, and he's sentenced to um, 18 months hard labour, which is the same punishment. In fact, Wilde got two years hard labour um, two decades later. But it broke Wilde physically and mentally and spiritually as a man. Um, hard labour in Victorian prisons was, you know, um, on a treadmill for eight hours a day just working you know it was it was it, it, people died from hard labor but he he only spent six weeks in prison because his cousin um secured his his release with an 100 pound surety on the basis that he wouldn't do it again he'd be a good boy uh, but on release things went much better because the as i just discussed like this victorian sex gender system was still trying to grope if you <laughs> excuse the pun grope towards an understanding of uh of what homosexuality was and of course while these laws were being reformed to sort of better define and punish same-sex desire so too the sexologists were wrestling with what this behavior might mean from a medical position and so on leaving prison his family seems to have regarded his um uh, sexuality as a mental disorder and so he was sent to put they, they put him into um a private uh, insane asylum in fact twice he was sent to an insane asylum, which probably wasn't much better than a, a prison in Victorian England. Um, and so, uh, you know, he wanted, he wanted to get away from this. And like most, a lot of upper and middle class English um, Victorian homosexuals at the time, including Wilde, of course, he moved to Paris um, to live in exile uh, because they had much more liberal laws around it. Um, Unfortunately, while sodomy might not have been a crime in France, sodomy in public was. And so a year later... Oh, <clears throat> yeah, a year later he was caught... Get a room. ...again doing exactly the same thing, having sex with a, a sex worker, a rent boy named Henri Lefranc in a public toilet, and he was jailed again in France for a further three months for outraging public decency. Something I try to do at least weekly. <laughs> so... Um, Understandably, within this context, Simeon's reputation and his career was completely in tatters, his very promising career at the time. No one really wanted to be associated with a pervert like this. Um, even Algernon Charles Swinburne, that provocateur I was talking about earlier, who made such a scandal about being a pederast and a homosexual and, and fucking a monkey, <clears throat> he wrote that, quote, for anyone to keep up his acquaintance, uh, it was impossible for anyone to, be, to keep up his acquaintance and not be seen as an accomplice. 
My brother in Christ, you claimed in public to have had sex with and then eaten a monkey. You really just like fuck off, like like you're taking these poses, but then when someone's actually suffering from this and is at the at the hard ends of the law, then you're just like, oh, I don't want to be seen 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 with this guy. Like, isn't that least... always the way of the edge lord? Yeah, I mean, um, many so... of our fellow podcasters do not exactly cover themselves in glory on yeah. these things. Um, but he. He, to, to their credit, a few people did stick by him, not least the, um, the Burns-Joneses, so I mentioned earlier, Edward and Georgiana, um, and they seemed to support him through this hard time, but his sort of budding career as a, ex- exhibiting his art really collapsed. He, he did continue to make work, and some of it sold in sort of small provincial galleries in Manchester and outside of London, but, but in general, his market had really gone, and so lacking the money from this mainstream art career, he struggled to actually paint large pieces, which is what he wanted to do, and he didn't really have the space, time, or money. Oil paint is extremely expensive, so he just couldn't really do it. Um, so he, he, he started to make some much smaller works, uh, uh, including um, drawing and watercolours for, for most of his life, although he did do some painting. And if we, In fact, the next slide, we'll see the direction his career was going in. I think this is called The Night and Sleep. Um, again, extremely androgynous characters. So, um, so his work in, in, in the decades that followed this scandalous arrest really intensified a lot of these earlier themes, um, and especially his relationship with his faith and his heritage. Um, and he focuses again, really like in this, his painting, on these androgynous, contemplative, face, sad faces. A lot of his work from this period, like The Moon and Sleep, but also Night and Sleep, and Until the Daybreak and Shadows Flee Away, which are paintings at the time, they all feature these faces in close-up, um, often staring sort of wistfully into each other's eyes. In fact, there's an, another painting of the same era. Oh, yeah. Um, they, 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 they're on the edge of sentimental, but they really lack the sentimentality to me. I, I like them a, a lot. To my mind, this sort of melancholic mysticism that infuses these post-arrest um, artworks makes it some of the sort of strongest and most beautiful of his work. But you can't help but read his public struggles into it. So despite the support of a few friends, his ostracization had made him this um, figure of outrage and disgust in Victorian society, and he very much was read as maybe one of the first bad gays of his time. He was understood in some ways as a bad gay. And he really struggled to survive. He had to resort to a life of crime, um, including what for me seems like the only really bad thing that he did, which was he ended up, um, allegedly, he got caught burgling the house of um, Edward Byrne-Jones, the one guy who had sort of stuck by him. Um, But Edward Byrne-Jones, again, to his credit, didn't press any charges against him. He also took refuge in a bottle and became an alcoholic, and his alcoholism and his poverty um, ended up him spending some 20 years of his life going in and out of um, the truly dreadful conditions of St. Giles's workhouse where poor and unemployed people were forced into manual labour in order to keep them off the streets or from prison. But he maintains his passion for his work, um, drawing on whatever sort of paper he can find. Um, scraps of papers have a lot of his later drawings, and sometimes apparently even by just painting and drawing straight onto the pavement. And he was visited towards the end of his life by this American writer, Julia Ellsworth Ford, and she remembers him as still being extremely articulate, well-informed and, and very passionate about his work, despite this precarious position. But the, the life of a, a sort of alcoholic on the streets of Victorian London clearly took the toll on the man, um, who was, you know, fallen from grace as a toast of the London art world. And he was sat in the dining room of St. Giles's Workhouse in 1905. 
he was struggling with rheumatism and he was 65 years old and that's where he died in the dining room of the workhouse and it takes mm. actually decades until his work starts to get reappraised really not until the 1980s there's some shows before that and a few pieces but it's not really until the work of a, a, this playwright in London called Neil Bartlett during the AIDS crisis in the 80s where he sort of rediscovers and sort of republicises his work and his reputation is recovered as one of the most unique and interesting queer artists of Victorian London. And that's the story of Sil- Simeon Solomon. Well, thanks for that story. And I'm going to pick up now... Um, we're going to turn the clock back from 1905 to 1870. And we're going to talk about a later bad gay whose visual imagination characterized both the Weimar-era masculinist gay political movement and four generations, maybe five generations, of racist German attitudes towards Native Americans. Um, and that artist is the one and only Sasha Schneider, Um, Here's Sasha Schneider in his studio, um, surrounded in the ideal situation of the gay artist by slightly (laughs) larger-than-life ass. Um, Schneider is one of the... He looks great. Yeah. That's a really sharp outfit. He had a whole bodybuilding academy. We'll get into it. Um, Schneider's one of the first sort of self-confidently publicly gay artists. I think in, in contrast to Solomon, there's much more... Um, masculinity here and there's much more self-confidence about the desire on display and what's interesting I think about Schneider is how much that's able to translate uh, to a much broader non-gay audience at the time um, uh, until it doesn't and we'll get there but um, yeah he's one of the first sort of self-consciously gay artists Uh, all of that photography on Instagram in like black and white of the sort of muscular guy with the fingernails that's his fault (laughs) we can blame him for it Um, Biographical details about the early part of his life are slightly hard to come by, Um, so we're going to talk a bit about his work, and we're going to talk about what we do know, and we're going to talk about how his work circulated, um, and then we will get to his uh, life, his adventures, his misadventures, and his um, truly spectacular death. So... Um, In 1889, uh, he's born in 1872 in St. Petersburg. Um, In 1889, he graduates from high school. His family moves to Zurich um, when he's about 10 years old. Um, And he begins studying art at the Dresden Art Academy. Um, He starts exhibiting very soon after in 1894, so he's very young. And by 1900, he's able to open his own studio um, in the town of Meissen um, at Saschendorfer Straße 81. And from the very beginning, his work is clearly influenced by this turn of the 20th century uh, homoerotic masculinist anarchism that we've discussed a lot on the show before. Um, So I'm now going to show you his 1894 painting, The Anarchist, and it's so nice, I decided to show it to you three times. (laughs) The Anarchist. Um, so let's talk about... He's really bringing out the political themes here. <laughs> I really, yes. The, the left political theme, especially. <laughs> um, so the, uh, what do we see here? Well, uh, we have a muscular young man throwing a bomb at some sort of Babylonian temple column. Um, and so there's the Orientalism of this temple. There's this sort of Babylonian so stuff. A, a muscular and entirely naked young man. A muscular and entirely naked young man throwing a bomb at a temple, yes. Um, in contrapposto from the back. Um, so we have this Babylonian temple column in the background. This late German imperial era is the era of bringing stuff back to Germany from ancient Middle Eastern empires. There's a museum, um, if you go about 20 minutes on the train from where we are now, uh, which is actually about to close for 10 years, a minimum, because it's sinking into the 
um, it's sinking into the river and they have to rebuild the foundation called the Pergamon Museum, where um, it was not built by the time that Schneider was was uh, working, but uh, at the time that he was working, they were bringing the stuff that's in it, things like the entire Great Gate of Ishtar, uh, vast anthropological and ethnographic collections of um, these kinds of ancient empires. And artists viewing these ancient imperial objects in a kind of public conversation about the ruins of these old empires um, spurns a lot of conversation about imperial decline and the ways that excessive modernity can contribute to imperial decline, right? Men are no longer men. Men are behind desks. Men are weak. Men are sickly. There's all of this um, modern stuff. There's like electricity and trams and noise and you're inside and you're pale and, um, it, you I'm know. I'm glad we've got over that as an idea. Yes, um, very much so. And, uh, you know, and, and, it, and in Germany, those, these ideas turned out great. So it, it's all fine again. Um, and so uh, the idea of imperial decline, of excessive modernity contributing to that sickliness, body, bodily degeneration, this is very much in the kind of cultural atmosphere at the time. This is very much like Tucker Carlson today talking about, you know, that you have to go outside and, and suntan your balls in order to regenerate your... Exactly. And, and just like that, there's people, just like that, there's people at this time who are, who are, you know, doing that on Monte Verita in Ascona, Switzerland. And just like today, there is a kind of left woo-woo as well as a right woo-woo um, uh, formation. And there's a significant crossover from left woo-woo to right woo-woo and probably less vice versa. And, um, just like uh, now, then, there begins to be this interest in bodybuilding as a way to combat this. So this is the moment when uh, Eugene Sando, who we've talked on the show, about on the show before, is uh, touring these kind of strongman shows in very sort of uh, primitivist attire. And um, so literally what we're seeing in The Anarchist, Schneider's depiction of anarchism is a young, white, European muscle man throwing a bomb at old, effeminate, oriental, ancient history. Uh, but I think there's also something in Schneider's work of a fascination with this other, right? Um, the other is not only this past that needs to be blown up, but is also something that's fascinating and something that you might even uh, identify with. Um, I want to now look at a painting from 1896 called Mammon and His Slave. Wow. And so we have this sort of uh, bird-faced man waving money over a white man who's kneeling and kissing the ground and in chains that are being held by the sort of bird man. There's... He's kind of... It's kind of... Uh, Egypt, supposed to be Egyptian? Well, I see a lot of things here. I think there's a maybe anti-Semitic trope about how money imprisons you. Okay, I think yeah. the, the hook nose on the bird uh, is a little suspicious. Okay. Um, money being literally black and dark, right, and enslaving this white man who's kind of cowering on the ground under this cat toy made out of coins. Um, but what's, what's also interesting is the Egyptian uh, iconography here. Money is a version, I think, um, you can read of the Egyptian uh, bird-headed god Horus. Um, Schneider would have seen Horus stuff brought back from Egypt um, in these different um, imperial museums. Horus is um, one of the most significant of the ancient Egyptian deities. He's the god of kingship, of healing, of protection. He's also the god of the sun and the sky. 
Um, and in the kind of ancient belief system, he's linked to or somehow analogous to Apollo, who is the god of music um, and of art and who's one of the kind of um, gods who is repeatedly depicted by and looked to by these masculinist artists. What's really interesting as well is this this racial depiction of like this white slave because the, 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 the figure of the white slave was a full-blown moral panic, at least in Victorian England, the idea that white white people were being taken. And it's, it's, it's a very orientalized view, so there's a lot of paintings at the time of like these harems in the east of white white slave women, and it's sort of like a way of sort of depicting this sort of softcore pornography, really, for a, a, the men of Victorian England while still saying, you know, aren't we better than these people? But also that the in, in, in terms of that moral panic, like um, it's a it's a sexualized moral panic that actually underpins a lot of the legislation. Like we were talking before about the eighteen eighty five Criminal Law Amendment Act, which um, introduces this crime of gross indecency between men. But actually that was uh, just an add on to the main bit of the act, which was actually about um, this fear of the white slave trade and um, ending uh, human trafficking um, for the purposes of sexual immorality. Yeah. Uh, very much similar fears uh, circulating in Germany at the time and very much similar kind of um, depictions of this other... All intense projection. Very, very, very intense projection, yes. I'm glad we've got over that. Uh, absolutely, 100%. Um, yeah, there's there's no white slave panic now about you know people who think that hundreds of millions of American women are being trafficked in Target parking lots. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, Schneider, I think, when you look at a work like this, you can see that there's just a lot going on interpretively and symbolically, and I think more than a single story can tell. Um, these early Schneider works very quickly begin to circulate in the publications of the homosexual masculinist movement. We've spoken already on the show about a man named Adolf Brand and a magazine called Der Eigene, The Individual. And this was a masculinist, anarchist journal. Masculinism was a strain of uh, early homosexual identity formation that actually, I'm using the term homosexual mostly because I think the masculinists are awful and using it uh, is very much making their ghosts angry. But um, they rejected the term homosexuality. The term homosexuality was a sexological term that was taken up first as a diagnosis and then by... Um, sexologist activists like uh, Magnus Hirschfeld in Berlin um, who started developing a theory of homosexuality as being related to gender variance, as being related to the sex gender system um, and Hirschfeld creates this um, what he calls theory of the sexual steps in between the sexuelle Zwischenstufen and here you only get to leave the city if at the airport you're able to say sexuelle Zwischenstufen three times fast um, he comes up with this theory, which is rejected by the masculinists who say, no, we are not effeminate, we are not compromised, we are not, um, you know, the, the masculinists code effeminacy, Jewishness, Hirschfeld's Jewishness, sickliness, modernness, it's all one thing. We are actually like the great heroic men of the past, and so they're looking to Alexander the Great, and they're looking to Frederick the Great, the German emperor we talked about on the show, um, to Hadrian, who we've written about and talked about, um, and to these kind of heroic models, and also to, as we'll see later uh, in some of Schneider's work, uh, to the Grecian pederastic model as kind of legitimizing uh, components of uh, a, a, a way of being gay in the, in the world. Can I, can I 
lower the tone of the show, but I think this is maybe an important point. One thing I really noticed about this, which is so different to the, the depictions of the, 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 the young boy love in, uh, in Simeon Solomon's work, and also these like representations of time of looking back at this pederastic model, is like the Horus here is depicted with clearly a really big dick. No? Yeah. Like, you, don't, you don't see that in the, the work of, the, sort of those other artists at the time. No, you don't. Um, and yeah, you see, yeah, you see there's definitely more of an interest in the, and I think there's a, one of the things that I think is interesting about the visual cultures of the masculinist movement, and it's a, a real tension there, is that on the one hand, and it's really difficult to imagine now, on the one hand, they're using Grecian pederasty specifically as a politically legitimizing strategy. Right? This is a moment when it is more publicly acceptable to advocate for pederasty on the Grecian model than f- to advocate for an adult, a relationship between two consenting gay adults, which f- in our ethical system that we share in the world in which we live now, that's very difficult to imagine. Right? There's nothing worse, I think, than... I don't think there's anything you could say in public that would have you more immediately denounced by more people right, than advocating for man-boy love. Right. But this is a time when that is actually more acceptable than a contemporary gay subjectivity. At the same time, the masculinists, many of them, can't help but reveal their actual attraction to other big burly men. And I think with Schneider, it's very much that. Okay. And we'll see it later when he opens his uh, bodybuilding academy. <laughs> okay. The uh, Power Art School. <laughs> Not making a word of this up. So um, Schneider's first giant public success is with this vast uh, 1902 painting, which is called Truth. Um, As you can see, Truth consists of many naked men fighting one another in a sort of artistic fashion. uh, And above, uh, there's a sort of medieval knight knight and god scene. You can also see, I think, some tarot influences in that sort of central figure on the top. This painting is uh, three meters by uh, two meters. These are, you know, huge. They're not quite life-size figures, but they're they're big, um, and it's presumed destroyed. Again, from the kind of uh, masculinist and more broadly uh, occult, esoteric, visual culture of this period, um, this mix of Orientalist, classical, medieval symbology um, is very familiar, and it's all it all kind of flattens together into this somewhat sort of generic past. Um, Now, at this time, uh, Schneider is living uh, with his widowed mother and his unmarried sister, like many heterosexual men do. Um, And based on the success of this, he is commissioned to paint the foyer of the Cologne Opera House, um, creating a giant cycle for the barrel vaults that represented the entire history of humanity. Um, And then on one wall is the history of music, and on the other wall is the history of world literature, right? Because opera is the unification of the the literary and the musical art. Um, Something I think that is interesting and difficult to talk about with the masculinists is many of them have fascist or proto-fascist politics. Um, It's important to note that the Nazis did not love them back. Um, So in 1937, the paintings were taken off the walls, and... They are still officially considered missing, but apparently um, they are somewhere gathering mold and dust in the archives of the Cologne City Museum, Mm. um, and they have never been restored. Uh, I would be really interested to see them, uh, but um, the Cologne Opera House is right now being renovated, has been being for many years, and I I don't believe there's any plan to put them back. 
So uh, from 1902, in 1902, um, uh, Sacher Schneider makes friends with and get ready for a great imperial German name, Kuno Ferdinand Graf von Hardenberg. Um, Hardenberg, Hugh. The Count of Hardenberg, um, with whom he corresponds intensively, who starts supporting him financially. um, And Hardenberg introduces him to the person who makes Sascha Schneider famous, um, and that is the author Karl May. Um, Germans in the audience, raise your hand if you grew up with Karl May. Yeah, we have many Germans raising their hands in the audience. Um, So Karl May, who's there on the left, Schneider's there on the right, um, is born in Saxony in 1842, Um, He does uh, teacher training. He trains to be a teacher, uh, but pretty quickly uh, stops training to be a teacher and starts a life of crime when he's expelled from teacher school for stealing candles. (laughs) He gets sent to a workhouse. He then gets himself made administrator of the prison library. And while he's administering the prison library, that's when he starts to read widely. And he makes a list at this time of all the books that he's going to write in his life. Wow. Um, does he leave prison and write them? No. He leaves prison and becomes a con man. Um, he's repeatedly in, uh, arrested for impersonating policemen, impersonating doctors, impersonating notaries. Um, he then escapes and flees to Bohemia, to the Czech Republic. There he's arrested for vagrancy. Um, and basically he's in and out of jail from, uh, from early 20s to early 30s, at which point he gets employed by... Uh, a new a kind of institution, which is called an entertainment paper. And these are kind of scandal sheets, yellow scandal sheets for the lower middle classes who are suddenly able to read mm-hmm. and can afford to buy these kind of cheap... Penny dreadfuls. And Yes, exactly, this kind of thing. Um, now, he still continues to be pretty insolvent, um, and his success comes when he starts writing a cycle of travel novels called The Orient Cycle, which the author, whose Gymnastics of the Will remained the most popular manual on autosuggestive spiritual exercises in Germany, explained his inclusion of Schneider's work as follows. The painting by Sascha Schneider illustrates the power of hypnosis in captivating artistic form. Schneider's Institute then sought to harness the power of hypnosis in the service of body culture through a combined program of physical gymnastics and gymnastics of the will. End quote. Wow. So Schneider uh, lives and works at this institute and uh, really uh, hates and is depressed by aging. Uh, He becomes diabetic and he dies in 1927 after having a sugar attack caused by his diabetes. And it's extremely likely that he actually um, committed suicide, basically by intentionally eating a vast quantity of sugar and entering himself into a coma. Wow. Yeah. And so he dies in 1927, um, probably just in time to not get, um, to not spend his old age in a camp. And that's the story of Sasha Schneider. Well, thanks, Ben. So I want to open up a conversation um, about Simeon Solomon, but I think the themes very much carry through. Um, like, what is it about this moment of um, sort of spiritualism and anti-modernism um, that ends up being so influential for the creation of these kinds of gay artistic forms? And, and do you think we still see it in the legacies of these forms now? Well, I think in the English context with Solomon, it's slightly different because because it's taken up so much by the bourgeois left of the time 
Um, and you see that, you definitely see that running up to the modern day. So, so one of the major sort of outcomes, I guess, of, um, of the pre-Raphaelites was this influence on the arts and crafts movement, which was to come, which was reacting to this like new world of mass production uh, and m- consumer objects that was obviously being pioneered in England at the t- in, in Great Britain at the time. Um, it has kind of had the first mass consumer culture in that way. And the arts and crafts movement was a, was a response to that, saying that actually, like, you're losing something of the soul through this mass-produced pr- methods. <clears throat> and that had a very progressive element to it, albeit from quite a patrician way. So uh, obviously the, the, the greatest proponent, I guess, of the arts and crafts movement being William Morris, who's very much coming from a sort of, like, anarchist left perspective, socialist left perspective. Um, and he's saying, like, that, that you lose something of the soul of... Uh, Production by removing the hand of the artist or the or the artisan, and he wanted to raise the, the the position of the person who makes things from being a producer to an artisan to an artist almost. So, so the the, the what they're really concentrating on in the uh, arts and crafts movement is um, uh, almost consumer objects, you know, like things for your house, wallpaper, and pots and pans, and windows, and things like this. Um, and that's in some ways like driven by a very big concern for the people who are producing it, even from this patrician upper class sort of um, way of thinking about it, that they that, that they start to also advocate for you know workers' rights and right. Um, we, we we don't want people to be making if there's going to be um, if every house is going to have a set of dishware, we don't want it to be made in a horrible industrial pottery by automatons. We want it to be made by sort of craftsmen who live this imagine who live this who live this. Um, Fulfilled and artistically and spiritually uh, integrated life, right? right? And from a Marxist position, which they non-alienated, interesting, a non-alienated labor. Yeah, right. They wanted to have the relationship with their work, um, and that that in itself would like um, bring with it, confer with it, both spiritual and moral benefits. And that's like kind of the context in which they're working. Um, so you have to remind me to start your question again. How are no, I can I can pick up from there. Um, because I think there's a lot of I think you see a lot of the same thing in a lot of the same sort of themes coming through Schneider's work. I think a lot of this kind of anti-modernism, um, both left and right wing, comes from the felt experience of alienation, right? And one of the one of the terrible things about fascism is that it gives you an answer to the felt experience of alienation, and oftentimes a an answer that feels better than liberalism's answer. Um, it's a terrible answer, it's the wrong answer, but it's an internally coherent answer, and it invites you into an imagined community of brothers and gives you a gun to kill the people who aren't your brothers, right? Um, and, and that is a vision of non-alienation and of integration that is a, it, it is a response to, and its success then and now um, is a response to the real failures of um, existing liberal systems to, right. to deliver... Whereas in the UK, it becomes part of, like a, I guess, like a new culture, which is perhaps like of the left, let's say, um, that, uh, and, and you see it reflected, especially in the works of people like Edward Carpenter, who would go on to be like very, very influential in this new concept of a homosexuality that is not based around a pederastic model, but is based around a sort of Whitman-esque brotherhood of men together. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also that then emerges within this same model the idea of workers town like workers towns so places um, like uh, Bourneville for example like there's a, a reform that you have a role as as the factory owner to ensure that you 
your your people your workers are living in sort of good conditions and are also raised in a sort of morally responsible way so Bourneville is the town that's attached to Cadbury's chocolate factory which is a Quaker run chocolate factory and People have individual homes in which to raise their own bourgeois family with their own gardens, semi-detached, these nice little cottages. Um, and they have um, churches or meeting houses and places to go to worship. And importantly, they don't have pubs. Um, and, and then that, that emerges again with like new, new model towns are emerging in the 20th century and, and the idea of leaving the city and an escape from this modernist, modernising, terrible industrial right. world that we're, we're creating, um, which in... Is, is, is interesting because a lot of it also falls into this like left woo that you're talking about right um and and um but 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 then the response to that that you get from from the rest of the left is quite interesting because for for example orwell is the big enemy of these people and he writes about this a lot in the 30s and he calls them um uh, uh, l- l- lentil munching, sandal wearing vegetarians. You know, he's he's very <laughs> vicious about it. Which is a model that still exists today. If you say to someone, like, well, you know, "What's a guardian reader?" They, they'll say, "Maybe it's not lentils anymore. It's like quinoa or something." But it's the same falafel. model. Yeah, falafel. It's the same sort of obsessive model with what you consume being part of your political thing, and that there is a like a weakness weakness to that. And of course, in Orwell's case. Um, um, as much as he's a hero of the left, he's extremely homophobic, uh, and, yeah. and that is driven by the. A lot of that is also driven by the homophobia. Interesting. The other thing that it's, I just, well, what was, what, what Martin says like his reflection on it, saying like, "Oh, these people who are not building a proper socialist movement based in the factories, but are in this woo sort of you know brotherhood of man, um, uh, Walter, uh, Walter Crane, William Morris model." Um, which there's maybe something to be said for that. I think it's a very patrician model. It's not really driven by like a, a, by the people who it claims to be helping. It's a patrician model, but um, but the, the, his the, his way of um, sort of elucidating that is is to say, well, it's, it's also like faggy as hell. Like it's not they're not right. real, they're not real men, they're not real workers. They're 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 they're, they're yeah they're. Right. And what's interesting then with Schneider is you see the kind of the, the brotherhood of men struggling to be born, right? And, and the, the, mul- the multiple directions that also that can go. The thing that I think is really interesting, and I'm going to plug something here for people in the room. We have a show that opened at uh, Schwulis Museum um, about a week ago uh, called uh, Aufarbeiten, uh, which is about the historical connections between uh, pederasty, the German bourgeois youth movement, and the German gay rights movement. And you look at that history, and of course the blood libel about gays is that we're out for your children, right? And that's um, what's being used now to make uh, trans healthcare illegal in vast swaths of the of the United States. Um, that's what's behind this whole sort of um, uh, anti-trans bigotry in at the highest levels of um, UK politics, both left and right, um, and it's very much here in, in Germany as well. Um, the The lie of that, right, is that oftentimes for these early movements, they adopted the pederastic model because that was actually more acceptable. Like that was what was available, that was what was encouraged, and actually that was weirdly coherent and accepted and could be, you know, in the early decades of the 20th century, could be at the highest levels of this kind of non-explicitly gay bourgeois youth movement, which had many more adherents, many more followers, many more... 
um, people involved, many more publications, right? It was much more acceptable to send your child off to be in the Van der Vogel or to send your child off to be in the in a in a reform pedagogy school than it would have been to um, as an adult, right? Uh, have a have a gay sexual relationship with another adult man, um, and then. When this turns, and I think it's correct that it turns, right? I think that it's sex with children is wrong. Um, we are holding the bag for this thing that was actually broader Victorian era culture's problem. I mean, it was us too, but right, like it was, it wasn't yeah. just us. And then we're the ones who get sort of uniquely blamed, despite having reached for what was available, and then it moves on. And I think this is an interesting historical process and something I've learned more about uh, in the past um, few years. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's always the thing that a hangover, like the, every new moral panic in some way emerges from the kind of this, this, this sort of social compromise that ends the previous moral panic. Right. Okay, yeah, well, I've got to actually go one last question, which is um, if people are interested in uh, reading more about, about uh, your subject... Um, do you have some sources at ease for this episode? I do, absolutely. Uh, thanks for remembering. Um, you can look at a book, uh, that book by Michael J. Cowan, Cult of the Will, Nervousness in German Modernity. Um, there's the book by Glenn Penny, Kindred by Choice, Germans and American Indians. Um, I would also recommend people listening to the show especially. Google Sasha Schneider. Look at his art. There's a lot of it on Wikipedia. There's a lot more of Schneider's art on German Wikipedia, actually, but it's all in Wikimedia, so take a look. Um, and there's an essay in... Uh, Quier.de in German by uh, Erwin Panhuis called uh, Karl May's Ziemlich Offen Schwuler Kunstlerfreund, um, Karl May's a quite openly gay artist friend, um, where a lot of the biographical stuff came from. What about for Simeon Solomon? Um, well, there is a Simeon Solomon research archive online, and they publish quite a lot of stuff, including second, primary and secondary sources about him, and it's very interesting. And um, for this piece, I, I looked at two essays they published, one called uh, Solomon's Life Before 1873 uh, by Roberto C. Ferrari and Solomon's Life After 1873 by Carolyn Connery, 1873 obviously being uh, his arrest. Um, and I also um, looked at an article by the uh, Minneapolis Institute of Art called What Really Happened to the First Gay Art Star? Well, great. Uh, now, for the third time, that's our show. Um, thanks so much for joining us here live at the Berlin Podcast Festival. And uh, you can find the show on um, social media at Bad Gaze Pod. You can find me on social media at Ben Writes Things. Uh, you can't really find me on social media anymore, but you can subscribe to my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. I recommend doing it. Uh, Hugh is free. Bye. Bye. Bad, 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 bad,